The following audio is from Abner Creek Baptist Church. For more information, visit www.abnercreekbaptist.com. I love that we sing those great songs, and we sing the great truths about God, and we sing to God. At the same time, we're singing really to one another, spurring one another on to love and good deeds, what God's called us to in the gospel. Amen? Amen. Let me invite you to take your copy of God's Word and open with me to the book of Exodus. And uh, we'll look, Lord willing, today at Exodus 8, chapter uh, chapter 8, verses 1 through 15. Uh, We may or may not get through this whole section on frogs today. But if, you know, who doesn't want to spend two weeks on frogs anyway, right? So um, anyway, so we'll we'll see how this goes. And I'll go ahead and just give you a little bit of a disclaimer so that you're not just distracted by it the entire time. Um, Two things are going to happen. One thing is going to happen. Two things, or another thing could happen during this. Uh, I'm going to fidget with this stand. Uh, Because it is not fixed, I will go up and down throughout the entire thing. I don't know why I do it. It drives my wife crazy, but, but VBS, and that's, that's what I have, okay? So try not to be distracted by that. The other thing that could happen is my Bible is heavy, and it could cause this thing at some point to tip. And if my Bible comes flying out at you, just consider it the voice of God calling you to repent, okay? So um, I hope that doesn't happen, but we'll see. Um, and I didn't get the memo, apparently. Uh, I couldn't let that one go by. <laughs> Did you guys go shopping together? <laughs> that was great. All right. Exodus chapter 8, verse 1. Let's, let's look at this together. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, Let my people go that they may serve me. But if you refuse to let them go, behold, I will plague all your country with frogs. The Nile shall swarm with frogs that shall come up into your house and into your bedroom and on your bed and into the houses of your servants and your people and into your ovens and your kneading bowls. Anybody kind of squirming a little bit right now? Yeah, okay. Verse 4, the frogs shall come up on you and on your people and on all your servants. And the Lord said to Moses, say to Aaron, stretch out your hand with your, with your staff over the rivers, over the canals, and over the pools, and make frogs come up on the land of Egypt. So Aaron stretched out his hand over the waters of Egypt, and the frogs came up and covered the land of Egypt. But the magicians did the same by their secret arts and made frogs come up on the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh called Moses and Aaron and said, Plead with the Lord to take away the frogs from me and from my people, and I will let the people go to sacrifice to the Lord. Moses said to Pharaoh, Be pleased to command me when I am, when I am to plead for you and for your servants and for your people that the frogs be cut off uh, from you and your houses and be left only in the Nile. And he said, Tomorrow. Moses said, Be it as you say, so that you may know that there is no one like the Lord our God. The frogs shall go away from you and your houses and your servants and your people. They shall be left only in the Nile. 
So Moses and Aaron went out from Pharaoh, and Moses uh, cried to the Lord about the frogs uh, as he had agreed with Pharaoh. And the Lord did according to the word of Moses. The frogs died out in the houses, the courtyards, and the fields, and they gathered them together in heaps, and the land stank. But when Pharaoh saw that there was a respite, he hardened his heart and would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Now, this has got to be one of the most bizarre stories, really, in, in all of Scripture. You, we, we come to this plague and you say, frogs? Really? Why would God do that? So that's the title of the sermon. Frogs? Why would God do that? And I want to just show you some things in this. We may or may not, like I said, get through all of this. But I, there's, there's some powerful truth about who God is and about what he's doing when he plagues the land of Egypt with these frogs. First thing I want to show you is this. God is not interested in anything other than, anything less than, the complete and unconditional freedom of his people. God's not interested in anything else but the complete and unconditional freedom of his people. Notice in verse 1, God still says to Pharaoh, tells Moses and Aaron, go to Pharaoh and say, let my people go that they may serve me. His story hasn't changed. His demand has not changed and it will not change. He's not changing his terms. We saw this first back in chapter 4 verse 23. This was what God started with. Tell Pharaoh, let my people go that they may serve me. We saw it in chapter 5 verse 1. We saw it in chapter 7, verse 16. We see it here in 8.1. We see it in 8.8. We see it in 8.20 and 21. We see it in 9.1. We see it in 9.13. We see it in chapter 10, verses 3 through 4. We see it in chapter 10, verses 24 through 26. We see it in chapter 11, verse 1. And we see it in 12.31 as well. Either God directly saying it to Moses and Pharaoh, saying, go say this to Pharaoh, or Pharaoh understanding what God is expecting from him. And repeating it back to Moses and Aaron, understand, knowing, I understand what God wants. God's making himself clear. He's not interested in anything less than complete and unconditional freedom for his people. And it gives us a picture here, looking at the fact that he says it over and over and over again. All the way through, it gives us a picture of the tenacious, unrelenting pursuit that God takes on our behalf to set us free. Aren't you glad for that? Aren't you glad that today God is right now, if you're a child of his, still pursuing freedom for you? If, you're, if you've walked in this place and you're gonna hear the gospel and today respond, God is unrelenting now to, to, to take the gospel into your ears and into your heart and set you free. This is our God. The Israelites, we have to understand and kind of step back and realize that they're not merely slaves physically. They are slaves physically, and we should not take away from just the, the practical, physical element of the fact that God is liberating them from slavery. But it's affecting so much more than that. They were being held in a land that was not their own. In fact, at this point, they don't have a land of their own. They're, they're being held there by a king who is not their king, 
He's not the king of kings, but he's demanding that they serve him above all other things and above all other people, above all other kings, that he is to be really their God. And when God here comes and says, let my people go that they may serve me, that word serve, sometimes it's translated serve, other times it's translated worship. And what it should tell us is that God is not only seeking to reclaim slaves and reclaim servants for himself, but God here is reclaiming worshipers. And I want you to see this clearly. Their slavery to Pharaoh was a massive hindrance to their worship and service of the living God, Yahweh. When God told Pharaoh, let my people go, he's not just fighting social justice. He's not looking at some injustice in the world and and saying, that's not right, that's not how it should be, therefore I will make this right on a physical, earthly, tangible level. Instead, he's going to that and accomplishing that Therefore, we as the church should do that as well. But he's doing more than that. He's reclaiming their hearts as well. He's going to transform their hearts and make them true worshipers of God and not anyone else. God is no less interested in our freedom as he was theirs. God looks at us, and and I can tell you this, God wants for us freedom from the sin that keeps us from serving him with all of our hearts. God is going to, sorry about that, God is going to tenaciously pursue freedom from those things that, that keep us from being loyal to him, from worshiping and loving him alone. You and I know that there are times in our life that we can be distracted easily. That we can, we can begin to follow and pursue things that are not worthy of following. That we can give our allegiance to things that, that the world can get excited about. But in the, in the big scheme of things, they're not really worth giving our lives to. Anybody been watching the U.S. Open this week? Um, all the non-golfers in the room said... What's the U.S. Open? Is that like tennis or something? I don't really know. Um, I've been really keeping up with the, with the U.S. Open this week. And yesterday, this, this course that they're playing is, is just a brutal course. These greens, you can hit into what you think is a, just a tremendous shot into the green. And all of a sudden, you're, you're 50 or 75 yards off the green because this thing has just rolled and taken a path that, that you think, man, that, any, other, any other course, that would have been a tremendous shot. And I've gotten into this and watched this and I've watched this Jordan Spieth and Dustin Johnson and Jason Day and Grace. I should probably remember that guy's name. Um, are, are tied for the lead and, and I'm, I'm kind of excited to see what's gonna happen this afternoon and, and will Jason Day fighting vertigo be able to, be able to hold it out and, and maybe win this thing and who knows. It's okay to get excited about things in this world and, and to, to celebrate things in this world But there is something more valuable and more ultimate than the U.S. Open or fill in the blank. His name is God. His name is Yahweh. And he is tenacious in his pursuit that he be our only affection. I was doing research for this and what I I kind of 
wrestled with and what I came across was a testimony from, from Jen Wilkin. Jen Wilkin is a, is a Bible study writer and leader uh, for the Gospel Coalition, and our ladies have just completed a, a Bible study written by Jen Wilkin. But uh, she shares her testimony, and she talks about the problem with this. We, we hear God is tenacious in pursuing freedom for us as believers, but yet for a lot of us in our lives, that's not the reality that we experience. We don't experience a freedom like what we hear. And Jen shares her story. Listen to this. I just want to read a little bit of it. She said, I grew up in the Bible Belt where by mid-elementary, most of my peers could point proudly to a note written in the front of their Bible uh, announcing the exact date that they got saved. At junior high youth rallies, the rededications began, along with a smattering of, I thought I was saved, but I really wasn't. Through all seven verses of Just As I Am and all four years of high school, we children of the Bible Belt battled our doubts and bustled our backslidden selves down aisles to altar rails or altar calls. Maybe, she said, we thought, this time, just maybe, the saving will stick. Our problem was this. Our sinning had not ceased with our professions of faith. The salvation that had promised us new life in Christ had, all, had by all appearances failed to deliver. We still made all the same mistakes, and along the thorny path of adolescence, we added fresh failures to the list. Damning evidence, or so we thought, that we, when we prayed the prayer, we, we had somehow not done it right. Where was the freedom from sin we had been promised? Looking back, she said, I wonder if, for many of us, our problem was not with salvation itself, but with our understanding of how salvation brings freedom. Not until my early 20s did I gain any clarity on this issue. I knew that I served a God who was and is and is to come, but I had yet to learn that I possessed from him a salvation of which the same could be said. For the believer, our justification was... Our sanctification is, and our glorification is to come. We were saved, we are being saved, and we will be saved. I wonder if any of you are here today and could identify with Jen Wilkins' story. As I read that, the reason I wanted to read it to you is because it resonated with me. I grew up in church, and I grew up with, with all of these same things and, and all of the verses of the invitation song and feeling the weight of emotion crashing down on what I saw in my own life and thinking that somehow maybe I didn't hold my mouth right. Maybe I didn't say it with enough earnestness. But somehow maybe the salvation didn't really stick. I want you to understand today out of one verse of this passage, when God said to Pharaoh, let my people go that they may serve me, God is displaying this tenacious, persistent, unrelenting effort to see them free. And in the same way, God will do that with you. What, what, what happens is God is committed to freeing us from sin's penalty. When, when we come to confess our sin to God and to acknowledge the fact that he alone can save us from our sins and we cast ourselves on his mercy and his grace alone, he alone can pay that penalty, that's exactly what he does. That happens in an instant. He, God, punished Jesus for our sin. 
That's why Romans 8.1 says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This is a settled reality. If you've come to Christ confessing your sin, leaning on him, trusting in him alone, not an emotional experience, possibly you could be here today where you've come and you've prayed a prayer, but you didn't mean it. You didn't know what you were doing. You were inviting some emotion into your life. But if you've genuinely come wanting to trust the Lord, wanting to turn from your sin, the Bible says that you are saved, that you have been justified, that you, your sin has been forgiven, not just sins past, but that all of your sins future would also be covered under the penalty taking act of Jesus, that he took your penalty. God's committed to free us from sin's penalty. Most of us understand this theoretically, but where we get snagged is God's also committed in freeing us from sin's power. We who were once slaves to sin's power are now free to serve God. We look at our lives and we say, if that's the case, then why don't I? Listen to this verse, Ephesians chapter 2. We read this often here. But Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5 say, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Do you hear the past tense way that is stated? If you are here today and you are Justified, if you are converted, if you've come to know the gospel and cast yourself on the mercy of Jesus, then you are saved. There's no more condemnation for you. You used to walk in this power, Ephesians 2 1 through 4 says. But listen to verse 5. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. You say, well, how does this help me? I still struggle with, I don't always do this. And you're right, we don't always choose to walk in this freedom that we have. God has made us alive to the gospel. God has caused his spirit to move into our lives, but we still sin. But over time, we learn increasingly to choose holiness. What happens is so many of us think that when we come to the Lord, that when we when we pray to receive Christ, when we turn from our sin, trusting him, that it should all be over, that the struggle should be over. I love the fact that in the songs that we sang today, it still talked about that we still war against our enemy. This is still an ongoing battle. None of us are perfect. None of us have this down. We can, I, I'm so thankful I pastor a church where this is okay to admit, where we can walk in these doors and go, you know what, I'm still struggling with some stuff. We need to get better at being able to admit that. And in the, in the days and weeks and months to come, we're gonna be launching and, and talking to you about some new initiatives to, to start some small groups 
so that in the context of those small groups, you can get plugged in where you can do life with other people in those groups and you can begin to confess sin to one another. What happens in so many churches is people know they're struggling. They get out of the car struggling, but they walk in the door and they plaster a smile on their face and they talk to one another in lots of high church language and they begin to call one another brother and sister and shake one another's hands and pat each other on the back and act like nothing's ever wrong and they, they do this facade called church and then they walk out back into their struggle and they wonder, I must not really be saved. I must not have done it right. But the reality is God's committed to not only free us from the penalty but from the power as well. And his spirit lives in us to help us choose holiness but we don't often or or don't always do that. Our entire lives, Jen Wilkin wrote this, she said our entire lives from from that handwritten date in our Bibles onward are devoted uh, to, to working out our salvations, our salvation as we learn to choose righteousness instead of sin, to walk in obedience to God's commands. There's a verse that she bases that on in Philippians. Philippians chapter two talks about the fact that we are to work out our own salvation in fear and trembling while God works in us. And this is something that hasn't been taught, it hasn't been caught for most of us. That, that we are working out our salvation, that, that following the Lord, we don't, we don't keep our position in heaven and God's good graces by what we do, but because God holds us there securely, there's no more condemnation against us, then he calls us to then work toward holiness practically in our everyday life. And God is going to work in us to help us choose those things, but he calls us to work as well. God is committed to freeing us from sin's penalty, from sin's power, but finally also from sin's presence. For now, we are surrounded on all sides by sinfulness. You don't have to look very far to see this. We just look back at this previous week, just three hours south of us. In this little church in in this little city, Charleston, South Carolina, in the scope of the big scheme of things, and in walks this man and pulls the trigger, and nine people are dead. We see sinfulness all around us. Right now, there's all kinds of evil around us. And by the way, no one, regardless of what their worldview is, can't look at that and not call it evil. It's evil. That alone points to the fact that there is a God, he has a standard, and the Bible reveals it to us. But we see sin and sinfulness all around us, but not only are we surrounded by sinfulness around us on the outside, guess what? We're surrounded by sinfulness on the inside as well, aren't we? You you think that you're okay and, and everything is gonna be holy by going inside your house and shutting the door? The reality is the biggest sinner in the world lives there. And we need to begin to see our sin in that way. We need to begin to see that our sin, our personal sin, is just as big an offense against an infinitely holy God as the offense of a young man walking into a church and murdering people. But here's the good news. God is not only committed to freeing us from sin's penalty and power, but one day, 
he will free us from sin's presence. One day we will be ushered into his presence. We will trade the presence of sin and sinfulness for the presence of our Lord himself. And in that place, there will be no more wickedness. There will be no violence. There will be no breaking the law. There will be no weeping because of illness and cancer and and all the disease that that is rampant around us. You can walk through all of these Sunday school rooms all over this building, and, and just about every Sunday school room has a board in there with prayer requests on it. And just about every board in this place has a list of those who have cancer. One day we're heading to a place with a real person where cancer will not exist. Where sin and the effects of sin will be gone. God is committed to freeing us from sin's penalty, sin's power, and also sin's presence. Also, secondly today is this. God provides ample warning. God provides ample warning before executing judgment. Now, this is good news, but in verse 2, this is the first time that God gives Pharaoh warning. God says here in verse 2, but if you refuse to let my people go, Pharaoh, here's what's going to happen. I'm going to plague your land with frogs. You say, well, that's... That's no big deal. That's just a little sentence, a little phrase in the text. Why should we stop there? Because it points to the heart of our God. God doesn't owe warning to Pharaoh. Does he? Is God holy? Is God sovereign? Is God all-powerful? Is God right in all that he does? Is Pharaoh incredibly wicked, has he violated God's law, then God could in an instant bring judgment on Pharaoh. But God issues warning to Pharaoh and it points to his heart. It's his grace that leads him to extend it. But I want you to know, and there's a tension here because God has said, I will harden Pharaoh's heart. So there's this tension of God bringing about the effect that he wants to bring about, leading Pharaoh just like a stream of water in his hand, but also at the same time, Pharaoh will be held accountable for his own actions. And so when God issues warning to Pharaoh, Pharaoh, I'm giving you an opportunity to submit to me, to let my people go. If you do, I'm not sending any more plagues. But as Pharaoh resists, time and time and time again so that God can unleash and unveil the full weight of all the plagues on Egypt. Pharaoh is piling up evidence against himself. Just as God doesn't owe Pharaoh any warning, God doesn't owe us any warning either. Do you understand that? What a gracious place we sit today. I don't take lightly what I do. I look around sometimes and I think, these people keep coming back. Why do they keep coming back? You sit here today, not by happenstance, not because you were, just happened to be born in the South and this is what we do in the South. You sit here today by the grace of God, allowing your ears to come under the hearing of the gospel, issuing for you warning 
one day judgment will come. But before that day, let me extend my grace to you. Turn from your sin, and if you turn from your sin and trust my son, then there will be no plague against you because all of my plague, all of my wrath will come out against him and not you. This is a place of grace today. How many sermons have you sat through? How many times have you heard verses like Romans 6, 23, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus? How many times have you turned on a sporting event and and seen some idiot in the crowd painted up with John 3, 16 all over himself? How How many invitations have you sat through? God is extending his grace and he's issuing to you this warning before judgment. And if you're sitting here today and you're saying, oh, there, there's, there's still time. I, I want to I continue to do what I want to do. And one day when I've had all the fun I want to have, at that point, then I'll give myself to the Lord. You are presuming on his grace, my friend. Don't mistake God's kindness for weakness. God's issuing warning here. God has been so patient at times that the church itself has wondered, will he ever come back? Is he going to come back? This is what had to be addressed in 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 through 10. When Peter there wrote, do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord's not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. And then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. God is gracious in showing you and giving you warning today. But I want to show you this, and this may be all we get to today. Just because God gives us warning doesn't mean that we will always heed that warning. I want you to see the hardness, the wickedness in Pharaoh here. First thing I want to show you is that threat of consequences don't guarantee submission to God. God in his grace says, Pharaoh, if you don't let my people go, I'm going to plague your land with frogs. And he doesn't just say frogs and leave it there. Because if he did, there would be this element of frogs, really? That's the best you can do, God? But then he goes on to explain what those frogs will be like. That they will come up and cover the land. That the land will team with them. That word team is a word, that same word that was used in the Genesis account in Genesis 1 where God fills the ocean with the animals that swim there and he says, let the waters team with wildlife. And God says, there's going to be frogs swarming, teeming Egypt. Pharaoh, they're going to come up on you. They're going to come up on your people. They're going to come in your house, up on your bed, You're not going to be able to go to the fridge, Pharaoh, without opening to find frogs in everything you have. And one day, Pharaoh, when I finally get rid of them, they're going to die and they're going to stink. And Pharaoh looks at the threat of consequences and says, I don't think so. There's a world 
today adheres the thread of the consequence of the judgment of the Lord and scoffs. Maybe you're here today and you hear me talk about one day the eventual coming of judgment on this land, on, on the world, on humanity. And you scoff and you say, it's not today. The threat of consequences doesn't always guarantee submission. Number two is this, bargaining with God is not the same thing as submission to him. Bargaining with God is not the same thing as submission to him. Look at what Pharaoh says. And, and notice in verse 8, as soon as, as soon as these frogs are everywhere, he calls in his magicians. And the natural thing, again, I said this three weeks in a row, the natural thing to do if I'm a magician is to get rid of the frogs. But what do the magicians do? More frogs, Right? And I can't help but to think, I I wish I would have been there to see Pharaoh's face. I know what I'll do. I'll call my magicians. They'll fix this. Magicians come in. More frogs. And Pharaoh's face probably went, idiots. I mean, just think about it. I mean, we we look at the Bible and we read it as it's it's just this sanitary fiction. But think about what Pharaoh must have thought. And it's right after that, it's on the heels of that, that he calls Moses and Aaron and said, pray to your God. Not just pray to your God, but pray to the Lord. That he'll take these frogs away. And if he does, I'll let his people go to sacrifice to him. Now, did God say, let my people go so that they can come out and sacrifice to me? God said, let my people go that they may serve me. And by implication, God is meaning serve me and me only. Not temporarily, but permanently. And Pharaoh tries to reason and and tries to offer this, well, I'll let them go for a while. They can go out and offer a sacrifice to you if you'll just get rid of these frogs. But I want them back. And he thinks that bargaining with God is the same thing as submission to him, and it's not. God wasn't looking for a reprieve. He was looking for their freedom. Third is this. Desperation can produce a temporary submission. Desperation can produce a temporary submission. In verse 8, he calls Moses and Aaron, asking them to pray to the Lord to get rid of these frogs. But then in verse 15, the Bible says, when he sees there, when he sees that the frogs are gone, The word there is relief. When he sees there's some space, he relents and he hardens his heart, just as the Lord said. Sometimes in the middle of desperation, we can call out to God, but never intend to submit to God. I read in one of the commentaries, in in Philip Graham Ryken's commentary, he, he had this sentence and it just stopped me in my tracks. Many desperate people have called for a minister without ever really intending to call upon God. And that's exactly what Pharaoh's doing here. Pharaoh's calling for the ministers of God without ever intending to call on God himself. Desperation can produce a temporary submission, relief from consequences when those come, all of a sudden that fervency of heart and dependence on God wanes and it goes away. 
How many times in your own life have you promised God, God, if you'll only get me out of this, if God, if you'll only help me here, God, I'll serve you, God, I'll do this, God, I'll do that, only to have walked back on that. Desperation can produce a temporary submission that is not really submission at all. And fourth is this. Undeniable evidence is not enough to force submission. Undeniable evidence is not enough to force submission. Verse 15, he can't help. Pharaoh looks around and he sees the frogs and then he sees them gone. He looks at the fact that his magicians couldn't do anything but make more frogs. But then when, when Pharaoh is given the opportunity by Moses to name the time, name, name the day, Pharaoh, when you want God to do this, and I'll ask God to do it then so you'll know there's no one like the Lord. And God carries through. God makes good on that. God displays himself in undeniable evidence to Pharaoh. And what does Pharaoh do? He hardens his heart. Christians are often criticized in this world for ignoring evidence. They say, you're ignoring science. You're ignoring all of this. And in reality, it's just the other way around. You have to do quite a bit to come to the place where you explain all of creation by any other means. See, God here is not looking for, he's not looking for some temporary submission. He's not looking for bargaining. He's not looking for some rational argument to convince Pharaoh. He's displaying for us that that it almost happened. (laughs) It It almost happened. God's not looking for anything but complete and unconditional freedom for his people, and that requires complete and unconditional submission to him. If you're sitting here today and you've never come to that place where you've said, I don't own my life. I I can't own my life because when I own my life, I make a mess of things. If you've never come to the place where you've said, I'm guilty before God. If you've never come to a place where you've said, God sent his son Jesus and died on a cross, but I've never received that for myself, then today, won't you? Today, will you not sit through another gospel warning at the grace of God without submitting fully to him? Won't you today confess yourself as a sinner before God? and cast yourself on the mercy that is extended to you in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, I pray. God, that you would take just this simple opening two verses of this passage, and God, that you would take it and use it That your spirit, God, would apply your word to the minds and to the hearts and lives of those who are listening. That you would do so in such a way, God, that you convict of sin. Show, Show us, God, 
Show us exactly who we are without you. Show us, God, I pray, our need for you. And God, I pray that you would lead people today to cast themselves on you, to call on you to save them from their sins. And God, that today they would learn what it is to be free from the penalty of sin, what it is to be in the process of being set free from the power of sin and the hope of knowing that one day we will be set free from the presence of sin. God, I pray this to your glory in Jesus' name, amen. Now I know in this text, I didn't really get to the frogs. I didn't really get to any of of the text. We'll come back and we'll look at that next week. But I I think God led us here. Perhaps you're here today and you needed to hear exactly what was said I want to ask you to respond. Whether that's simply a respond of you communicating, talking to God, thanking Him for showing you and giving you clarity on salvation and what happens in salvation today, or whether that's today, you today, needing to be saved and coming, not walking an aisle to walk an aisle, but making a symbolic gesture of what God's really doing in your heart that today that you would come and talk to me if I can help you and allow me to show you how you begin to walk as a believer. If I can help you to, to pray and confess your sin to the Lord and ask him to forgive you, I'd love to help you do that. There's gonna be people in a prayer room that's through those doors and just around to the left. They'd love to pray with you. They're not there to counsel you. They're not there to to give you advice or to judge or to condemn. They're there simply to pray. They want to hear what's going on in your life and they want to pray in a gospel, biblical way for you. Maybe you're here and coming and kneeling across the front and praying to God would be something that God would call you to do. Maybe you're here and this is the place God has for you and you want to join the church. Whatever the case may be, we open this time of reflection and response for you to do just that. We believe that, that it's not enough to just hear the word. James tells us that we are to be doers of the word. And that includes repenting of sin and actively trusting the Lord. So whatever he's shown you, whatever he's calling you to, be obedient today. Let's worship our God. This time of teaching is brought to you by Abner Creek Baptist Church. For more information, visit www.abnercreekbaptist.com.